You go ahead and take out your notes from the bulletin this morning. You can follow along that way. We're going to be talking about love this morning, the love of God. Uh, yesterday, uh, actually no, two days ago, it was a Friday wedding. I got to stand about this close to two people who made these vows of commitment for a lifetime before God, that they would love each other exclusively and committed their life to each other. Um, it was a friend of my wife Becky's uh, since fourth grade. And we grew up in the youth group together, and this is her, um, this is her first marriage, this is his first marriage. God's timing was different than their timing. Uh, they were both in their 40s until they got married. Uh, but here they were, being God's man, being God's woman, and God providing a husband and wife uh, for, for the, the two of them. We were kind of laughing because at the rehearsal, um, I was just noticing how quickly and efficiently the rehearsal went the night before. And what I realized was this. There was six groomsmen and six bridesmaids which is fairly common these days. There's usually larger wedding parties. Um, but you would tell them, okay, we're going to line up, do this, do that, do the other thing. And they just did it. And I was like, that's just weird. Why is that weird? And so we get done with the rehearsal. I'm like, everyone feel good? They're like, yeah, we all feel good. They all had paid attention. And I, just, I still couldn't put my finger on it. And then it dawned on me. I'm like, oh, this is an older couple. Their friends are a little bit older and more mature. A lot of the weddings I do, they're right out of college. They're entering college they're thinking about college, you know, and what happens is during a, during a rehearsal, sometimes the attention spans like all over the place, you know, a butterfly, you know, and it's like, hey, let's get lined up. So anyway, it was, um, it was really fun. I want you to take out your pen and, and this is an exercise that's voluntary. It's always voluntary, right? Cause I could tell you to do something and you still have a choice whether to do it or not. Um, but I, I wonder if you were to take some space on your handout this morning and just begin to list who loves you. Who is it that loves me? And you just started writing down the names of those who loved you. So I won't be offended if you can listen and write at the same time. Just as we go through the morning, you can kind of jot some things down. You know, you're like, for starters, my dog loves me. I know that one for sure, you know. And then the follow-up question would be this. How do you know that they love you? You don't need to write something next to each name, but it's a valid question. How do you know this person loves you? Here's my, here's my opening statement this morning and what we're going to build on. That knowing that we are loved, and I mean really loved, changes us forever. It alters us forever. I think about this couple that I got to be a part of their wedding two days ago. And, um, and one of the things that I said to this girl, because we've walked with this, this woman for a long time, we've been friends with her for a long time, is you are a daughter of the Most High King. It's radically altered her entire life. She hasn't felt, uh, she's wrestled with this. Make no mistake, she's wrestled with it. But she knows that she's loved and accepted by God. And so not having a husband all these years, uh, always being, you know, a bridesmaid and never the bride. She was kind of joking around, I should get up all the bridesmaids' dresses that I, that I have, you know, you know, weddings I've been in before and take a picture of me next to it in my bridesmaid dress, which would be a great shot, don't you think? And the, and the neat counsel of that is, man, she's been a great friend to a lot of different people. She's been there to celebrate with a lot of different people as they've been chosen, they've been loved on, they've been vowed to, and it's not been her turn yet. Um, but she has, she has kept herself. It's changed her life knowing that she's loved by God. Look at the screen for a moment. Your response to this may be the most important thing about you. Your response to the statement, God loves me, might be the most important thing about you. Let me tell you two stories. These are two, stored, uh, two students who came through youth ministry at my previous church. The first one is a guy who, um, we, are, we are at Hume Lake Christian Camp, and the speaker has just preached powerfully from God's word, and he is calling people to the front. He says, if you're a sinner and you need to repent and you need to turn your life over to God, you need to come down to the front. So I notice one of my students get out and walk up, and he's up in the front, and, and I see him from the back, and his chest is just heaving and throbbing and kind of moving around. And I walk up to this kid. He's bigger than me by this point. I've known him for a long time. And I just threw my arms around him. And this kid is just wailing. He's crying out to God. And I threw my arms around this kid, and I just said one thing to him over and over and over. I just said, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. I just kept telling him that. 
Because that's what he needed to know. That's all he needed to know. And I'll tell you what happened at that camp in that moment. Is that there was something like a dam that just burst open. How many times had I as his youth pastor told him, God loves you? It's kind of my job to remind kids that God loves you. I tell them that a lot. I know his parents intimately. I've prayed with them far too many times to count for this kid's salvation. How many times had they said, God loves you? No matter what you're doing right now, God loves you. And the dam that broke that day at Hume, in some way it melted him. It freed him up. And it wasn't just one of those stories where happily ever after he walked solidly with the Lord and we can all point to that miraculous moment. But that moment was a key part of this guy's story and that was at least a decade ago. And to this day, He's encouraging other believers with his faith. He's plugged in, not just living a godly life, but using his gifts for ministry, worshiping the Lord. Let me tell you about a a second person. A second person is a girl that I knew, and she could not believe that God could really love her. She had no doubt that God existed. She had no doubt that God loved people. She could not get it through her head and her heart that God would love her. And for whatever reason, no amount of teaching and demonstrating and pleading and patience ever seemed to help this girl. She was locked in this prison that God couldn't possibly love me. And so for this girl, that kept her kind of chained to this rugged past that she had kind of been through, which no doubt contributed to the fact that that was a barrier, and that was part of what was keeping her bound from ever being able to realize or feel or sense or understand the love of God. Now, those two stories are representative of a lot of stories probably in this room. And here's what I would venture to guess, is that each one must decide this reality. Does God love me? Follow-up question. How can I tell? I mean, who says whether God loves me or not? How do we know that? How do we ascertain that as true or not? And then finally, what does it mean to be loved by God? Every world religion, every belief system, even if it's devoid of God, delves into this very topic, the love of God. The differences between these belief systems couldn't be more pronounced. But the question before us this morning is, what does that really mean? What does that look like? How does it affect us? Now, as a Christian, I've come to depend on the Bible as authoritative. And I understand that some people in this room aren't there yet. You haven't placed your belief, your firm foundation in the Scriptures, and that's fine. I'm going to use that as a starting point to say, this is how we know what it means to be loved by God. The Bible speaks of God's love for us as central to the story. Notice something really critical. We're not going to touch on this beyond this statement. The focus is God's love for us, not our love for God. Does the Bible talk a lot about our love for God? Absolutely. But central to the story is God's love for us. Let me read for you 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. It says this, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might, not, so, so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So how do we know God loves us? I mean, when I'm feeling ashamed, when I feel dirty, when I feel rebellious, how do I know that God loves us? You know what the right answer is? You point to Jesus. You point to Jesus, you look at the cross, and you say, there it is. Reject it, accept it, believe it or don't. But there it is on display for everyone to see. This is how much God loves us. This is in the way that God loves us. This is how it affects us that God loves us. So it's always the right answer to point to Jesus in wondering, does God really love me? Does God really love me right now? Point to Jesus is the right answer. Now, that's all fine and dandy. That's really, really good theology. That lines up with what the Bible bears witness to. But then there's how people live and think. And what I want to push on a little bit is this. I believe that even in the church, people live and think differently than what they know is the right answer. 
So the right answer is, we look to Jesus, we know that he loves us because of the cross, but maybe on the ground, so to speak, God's love looks a little bit differently. How many of you like to go to football games or watch football? Okay, Then you probably know this verse I'm about to, to reference. It's called John 3.16. Okay, It's kind of famous. In John 3.16, even football fans who don't go to church would know this. Um, well, they might know the reference. They might know what it actually says. But it says this. For God so loved the world that he gave. And then it goes on to say some things. Here's my thought. I think some people stop right there and live out their life kind of functionally with this phrase. For God so loved the world that he gave. So that, here's what it would mean. If God gives, then we must be loved. If God is not giving right now, then I must somehow be in the God doghouse. Okay? So if I'm being given good health, God must love me. If I'm really sick, what happens? God, do you love me? If I'm being given the promotion and recognized for my gifts and talents, uh, then God must surely love me. But if I keep being passed over, if I do great stuff and no one's noticing, if I'm not nearly as gifted as that person over there, God, do you really love me? If my relationships are all just swimming along happily and all wonderful, then surely God loves me. If they're rocky, God, do you love me? Do you see where I'm going with this? That's theology on the ground. We can give the right answer for an hour on Sunday morning, but how we live is really what we believe at the deepest level. So for God so loved the world that he gave. We're in this series called Step of Yes. And we're just taking what it looks like to respond by an invite to God from these different people. We're going to look at a prophet named Daniel today. How thrilling to know that it doesn't stop with the biblical age. God is still inviting in these different areas that we're looking at in the scriptures. So if you have your Bibles today, I'd invite you to open up to the book of Daniel. Daniel was a teen who was invited by God to be greatly loved. There's a lot of different ways you could go with this, but I would sum it up this way. He was a teen who was invited by God to be greatly loved. I'll give you a second to go find the book of Daniel. Why you do, why you do, uh, this is Boston. Thank you, Boston, for drawing an image. So many great shots of Daniel, and this was a good one to, to pull up. Uh, appreciate his artwork. Here's a little synopsis. Here's a little background to the book as we get into it so that you can kind of get your head around what's going on. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of the book very quickly. So, so this is it in a nutshell. The king of Babylon has declared war on God's people and he's besieged Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the capital city. It's the all-star city. And that city now is under siege. Ashpenaz, which is a really cool name, is the head of the palace staff. And he tells his staff, go and get some Israelites who are from the noble and royal families and bring them to me for a three-year internship so we can have some, some palace workers. Only get the cream of the crop. Only go after perfect specimens. So he sends off to go and do that. Well, in the context of that, Daniel, at the age, who's at the age of 16 at the time, and three of his friends are deported from the besieged Jerusalem off to Babylon to go and be a part of this uh, involuntary internship to work at the palace. They're handpicked for a government service. And if you take the book of Daniel, you basically see six stories that kind of feed our resolve of what it looks like to live unflinching, uh, un- unflinchingly obedient to God's commands in the face of all kinds of, of turmoil. We're going to look at those six stories. It also contains four visions, and the visions paint kind of this really big picture that God is sovereign while all the kings and rulers and wars and policymakers and lawyers all battle and gain ground and lose ground and use the media and don't use the media and all this stuff, that God's sovereign in all of that. That God's over and above all of that. So if you take the book, six stories, four visions. We're not going to touch the visions at all. I would strongly encourage you to go read them. They're pretty fascinating. To just read them and say, God, what do you have for me in this? Why are these in the scripture? And begin to let those teach you. But we're going to look at these four uh, or these six stories this morning. So John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. How about an individual? How does that flesh out to not just God loving the world because he made it and he has to? That's kind of distant. But how does it flesh out that God loves me? God loves you. 
We're going to look at, it, at an individual. To kind of keep us on this mind of, of trying to flesh this out from God loves the world to God loves an individual, we're going to call it the Daniel the whole morning, okay? So, for instance, for God so loved the Daniel that he gifted him, okay? So this is taking God so loved the world and bringing it down to an individual, in this case, Daniel. Now, while God seems to have a soft spot for prodigals, he also uses the talented, the well-educated, the young, the attractive, the upwardly mobile, who happen to have perfectly straight teeth. Okay, God uses those kinds of people. Sometimes we overemphasize the fact that God uses the down and out. And then those in our community, we live in a community with some of the elites of our country, and they would say, well, clearly Christian thinking isn't for me then. That's only for those who are in extreme poverty. The reality is the Bible has uh, every kind of socioeconomic background known to mankind uh, listed in it. And here's, here's God enlisting uh, one of the perfect ones. Look at Daniel 1.4. In Daniel 1.4, it says this is who they're going after. So this, if, if Daniel qualified for the role of getting picked, he was this. He says, go get some people from the royal family, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. So Daniel qualified for that, so he must have been all of that. You know the person that I'm talking about. This is the person who is disciplined, they're good-looking, they get all the breaks in life, things just go well for them, and then in your mind you think, yeah, but I bet he's a real jerk. And then you find out, no, he's actually really humble, he's super nice, oh, and a bonus, he loves God! And you're like, oh, man, you know, and the jealous monster can kind of, you know, rage up in you, right? It's easy to say, well, he's got all those things, but he doesn't have these other things. No, he's got the internal also. That's Daniel. That's who God goes after and begins to, to use. God gifted Daniel. Daniel didn't ask for perfectly white, straight teeth. He just got them. He didn't have a say in the matter. So he just was gifted in some of these different ways. And his invitation was to be greatly loved by God. Now, some of you are already starting to track, yeah, I guess he was greatly loved by God. I mean, he was wise. He had knowledge. He was able to stand in the palace. He got chosen for the internship. He got all these things going on. But that right there exposes kind of what we tend to start thinking about. God loves you if you are gifted. Think about Joseph before Daniel. Joseph's life and Daniel's life have some incredible parallels to it. Um, uh, so kind of an interesting side thing to, to look at. But like Joseph before him, Daniel was gifted in what he did, and he got noticed and rewarded for it. Some of you in this room are very gifted. You just never get noticed or rewarded for it. That's just the reality. Daniel was gifted, he was noticed, and he was rewarded. Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit Hitler-like. He instills kind of this re-education program of this besieged country. That sounds an awful lot like Hitler. Here's what he started to do. He started to brainwash them. He started to indoctrinate them with some different truths. He was going to re-educate them. He, he gives them a name change. We read about that in chapter 1. He gives them a diet change. And what he's hoping for is this. He's hoping to strip them of their Jewish identity and place on them this kind of Babylon identity and kind of take away from them their gods and their worship and, and who they were. And he was using some of these externals to try and kind of bring that about. Daniel, gifted by God, navigates all of this with incredible tact, incredible resolve, far beyond his young age. If you were to see this guy today, you would just go, wow, there's something about that kid. I mean, he is just gifted at being able to, to navigate this more than most any teen you could think of. I don't know if you ever ponder why gifts aren't equally distributed, uh, but chances are your kids do every Christmas and every birthday. Again, this is just true if you have siblings in the household. They have an incredible ability, even every meal time, right? I mean, if it's something you don't want to eat, your plate has more than their plate, right? And if it's something you do want to eat, then, well, their piece looks a little bigger than my piece, right? And that doesn't just dissipate once we, you know, get older and grow up. We can still tend to look at the gifts and wonder, huh, I wonder why things are distributed this way. It doesn't always have to even be a negative. Just observing, wow, God's gifted people in different ways. There's a parable of talents. Just write down Matthew 25. We're not going to get too far into it. But Jesus talking about the talents. And the, the bottom line of the story is this, that God is giving different amounts, and he says this, according to their ability. It would be something like a master coming and saying, to one person he gave 
uh, $10,000. To another person, he came and gave $5,000. To another person, he came and gave $1,000. And then he's going off on a trip. And Jesus makes a point of saying that the differing amounts, the different gift amounts, were according to their ability. Now, interestingly, in that parable, Jesus telling a story to teach a point, the one who gets punished is the one who lived cautiously. The one who had $1,000. You see, the one $10,000, what did that person go do? You know the story. He goes and invests it. What does he do with it? He doubles the money. He comes back with, with double. Same with the 5,000 person. What does the 1,000 person do? He buries it. You don't even have to go through Dave Ramsey's program, you know, debt-free living and all that, to understand that's a bad plan, right? At least put it in the bank, get a little bit of interest on it, right? So the one who lives cautiously, the one who doesn't employ the small, tiny amount of gift that was given is the one who's punished in this story. He was bearing the gift um, because he had a wrong picture of the master. Remember that? He says, I know that you're a hard master. In, in essence, he had a sense that he was stingy. I know you want excellence. I know, I, know, I know you want these. I know you're a hard person to please. So I buried my talent. I didn't want to mess up. I didn't want to screw it up. And what you get from that story is that the one that had the 5,000 and the 10,000, they must have had a different picture of their master, a generous master, one who wanted to go and expand, confident in their ability, confident in, in their effort to, to go and try. Gifts aren't given as a sign of God's love, but as a sign of God's working. So when God gifts you or God gifts someone else, it's not saying I love this person one amount, there's the gifts, and I'm giving this person another amount, there's the gifts, and those are measurements of my love. What's the pointer to God's love? It's the cross. It's Jesus. That's the sign of God's love. Instead, God gifts not as sign of God's love, but as, as a sign that God is working. He gifts his family for a reason, for a purpose. James 1.16 I put it in your notes. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Make no mistake, God gifts you. What do you have that did not come from the hand of God? Even our breath this morning, to be sitting upright this morning, comes from the hand of God. So God invited Daniel to be greatly loved. Gifts came from God and would be used by God. Here's point number two. For God so loved the Daniel that he enlisted him. Okay, He gifted him, and what we're going to see now is he gifted him for a very specific reason. Daniel, I'm going to heap gifts on you. You're going to get more than the average 16-year-old. You're going to get more than most any 16-year-old I've ever come across, for sure. Right now, whether you understand this or not, there is an ongoing battle raging right now. It is fierce, it is ugly, it has huge consequences, and it's spiritual. One of the things that's awesome, I've got Jonathan and Bertha sitting in the front row. They were just down in Mexico. Something that God always does for me and other people when we get out of our comfort zone, out of our home routine, and we go to a different land, a different country, even on business, is that you're there, and all of a sudden, the spiritual world kind of opens up to you in a fresh way, and you say, wow, God, I'm here for a very clear purpose, and I'm praying my way through my day. I, each assignment, I just, I'm checking in with you all the time. Don't you long to bring that kind of attentiveness back to your everyday life? Of course you do. And then what happens is we can just get into the routine. I've got my same commute. I grab my coffee. I walk in. I hang up my jacket. I sit at my cubicle. I power up the computer. I get into my day. Da, 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 stop by the gym. Come home. And same thing tomorrow. And same thing the next day. And same the next day. There's a spiritual battle raging right now. God loved Daniel. And instead of that meaning a life of comfort and ease with no conflict, it meant that he recruited Daniel into this battle in a very unique way. You know, his, his primary battlefield was pagan world rulers. A middle teenage boy is being recruited by God, gifted by God, to go and influence pagan world leaders. That's the story of Daniel. 
The conflicts described are specific to Daniel's day, but as we very kind of quickly walk through them, see if they don't ring awfully familiar in our day and age. See if these same kinds of conflicts aren't right before you in your everyday interactions as a believer in a society that isn't just just turning its attention toward God and thriving in its Christian walk. All right, let's get into these. The first one is uh, is really the, the first part of, of chapter 1. It picks it up verse 8. And it's this, it's this idea of self-indulgence versus restraint. I'm going to give you six battles. And there's kind of two people that step into the ring each time, and they're going to duke it out. So right with the story, I told you about this re-education program, they say, okay, we're going to give these youths the choices food. The subject for self-indulgence in this particular case with Daniel is food. But just to kind of lift your brain, think about other appetites that are appealed to you every single day. And how self-indulgence is being promoted, and yet you could look at that and say, gosh, I know there has to be some restraint in there, or else that could easily become a god. The Bible specifically calls out the stomach as a god, right? That we're not slave to our appetites. Daniel's offered the rich, choice food of the king along with the best wine. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. It says this, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. How different this is than most teens. I've already been uprooted from my family. I'm in a foreign place. Might as well at least take this great stuff being offered to me and indulge in it. And yet Daniel would not defile himself. You could say that Daniel is a conscientious abstainer. Kids, when parents say, eat your vegetables, uh, we know that science shows that this is healthy for you and a good plan, but the Bible, way before science caught up to it, was saying the same thing. And when mom says, eat your vegetables, she's got a verse, okay? I'm here to, you can kind of blame it on Daniel. Mom can point to that, and you're like, okay, it's actually in the Bible. I'm going to do it. I mean, I know science is there, but the scriptures were way before, and they've got it nailed down. Uh, so really blame it on, on, on Daniel. Uh, when you see this, basically God gives favor to the person in charge of Daniel, who's training Daniel up in this internship. And he says, okay, I'm going to let you try this out. And what happens? Daniel comes out far healthier than the others, right? So he's a conscientious abstainer saying, I don't want this rich food. I don't want the best wine. I want to pull back and just, and just do these things and eat, and, and eat according to the way that I know that honors God. And in the end, we see restraint wins. Here's the next one. Chapter 2 uh, is almost the, the entire story. It's, it's pagan magic versus divine wisdom. There's a lot of dreams in the book of Daniel. The king dreams, and he tells his cabinet, basically not only to interpret the dream, but he says, this time I'm going to add a bonus project for you. You need to tell me what the dream is. My hunch is, this dream was so traumatic for this king, that instead of playing the little game of going back and forth, he says, man, I want you to tell me what the dream is, in addition to interpreting the dream. They kind of play along with him, but ask him to change the rules back to when it was happy times. Would you tell us the dream, and then we'll conspire and play the little game, and we'll give you back kind of a a little interpretation of the dream? And the king basically says, I know what you're trying to do. Quit stalling. Tell me the dream, or else it's the end for you. I'll know that you're fakes. They kind of get fired up at that. They say, there's not a man on earth that can tell you that. And once again, kind of make this plea. Can we just go back to the little charade? You tell us the dream. We'll tell you some things. We'll have some grapes and some wine and go on with our day. Can we just do that? That was more fun. The kings put his foot down. They tell him there's not anyone uh, on the planet that can do that, but they don't know about Daniel. Look at chapter 2, verse 27. We pick up the story and it says this, Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Daniel is reaffirming exactly what his astrologers and enchanters and magicians were were telling him. But then he goes on to say this, But God can. God knows your dream. God can reveal it. 
God loves Daniel and reveals the dream and its interpretation to Daniel, which he then passes along to the king. Now imagine, friends, okay? I mean, put yourself here. You've had a dream that terrorizes you. You run the country. All your people that you've kind of leaned on and you've kind of had this tradition passed on can't tell you the dream. Along comes a guy that says, no one can tell you the dream. God alone knows the dream. And then he comes back and says, God told me your dream and its interpretation. And they come and they articulate the dream to you that you had and you've not told a soul. It's a miracle. And it would get your attention, right, as the world leader. So Daniel does that. Confusingly, this is really interesting in this story uh, over and over, um, there's constantly bad news for the kings. These dreams aren't, you're doing such a great job worshiping me, king, that I'm going to expand your kingdom. These dreams are, your kingdom's going to be ripped out from under you because you're worshiping yourself and exalting yourself over and above me. So Daniel keeps giving bad news, and strangely enough, he keeps getting promoted for it. He keeps getting rewarded uh, for giving this bad news. So it's a, it's a different time. It's a different season. Um, so he brings the bad news. He gets the promotion. And he says, hey, can my three friends come along too? And they say, sure. So his friends get a promotion as well. Divine wisdom wins out over pagan magic. Flip over to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is all about idol worship versus God worship. There's a prideful king. He sets up an idol for all to bow down to. And then he says, this is so fun. Let's make it a law. Let's make it illegal not to bow down to an idol representing me. Daniel and his friends are tattled on in verse 3, uh, chapter 12. They say they don't worship the image that you've set up. Um, and Daniel's three friends are thrown into the fire. Now, it's interesting when you see that story that... Uh, you know, the king looks in and sees the three. It's not just three. There's now four in there. Uh, many scholars believe that's Jesus showing up in their trial. Uh, it's kind of the coolest campfire you've ever imagined. You're actually in the campfire. Jesus is there. You're singing kumbaya. You're having a Bible study. I don't know what they're doing, but kind of a neat scene. Uh, they come out unscathed. Here's the power of it. King, the king notices the power they possess, and proclaims their God as the winner. And then what does he do? He signs that into law. Okay, So pick it up in verse 29. He says this, Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Now, what he says is a true statement. God is the only one able to rescue in that way. And the sentiment is nice, but this whole making converts by signing it into law and ripping you into half if you don't proclaim the name of God has never worked, okay? It started long ago. Let's make it a law. All of you should be Christian. We're going to rip you apart if you don't. That's not God's way. I mean, isn't this history? Like, read your history books. There's a lot of Christians who have gone around, marauding around, doing this. World religions today do this. They violently oppose you. They will rip you limb from limb if you don't proclaim uh, good things about their God and if you say bad things about their God. How different the God of the Bible is. How different the true God is. Who says it's His kindness that leads you to repentance. That kid who walked down voluntarily and was weeping over his sin, he wasn't scared to death that he was going to get ripped limb from limb if he didn't repent right then. That wasn't the tactic I used. Instead, he was drawn in because of what we just sang about. He loves us, and it changes us. All right, so God worship wins. Any of these sound familiar yet? I mean, can you see, even though it's in Daniel's day, can't you see these same things kind of just transposed with a little bit of a different details in our day and age? All of this is everywhere. God is using Daniel's life to expose the lies of this world. Let's keep going. The next one is, there it is, prideful little kings versus the sovereign king of kings. Turn over to chapter 4. There's more dreams happening. This time the king seeks out Daniel because as verse 9 says, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. He's taking the theology he has, little g gods, plural, and says, something's going on with this guy Daniel. 
it's bad theology. There's really one God, and it's spelled capital G, buddy. And it is the Spirit of God that's in him that allows him to do these different things. But what he notices is just something different. So he just says it in the way that he knows how to say it there in verse 9. There's more interpretation going on. There's a warning. Daniel's saying, humble yourself and turn from your self-dependence or ruin in your kingdom is certain. Pick it up in verse 29. Twelve months later, so a full year after this event goes on, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Sounds like some of the praise songs we sing, right? Only he's inserted his name in place of God there. And all he's doing is just kind of wandering the rooftops going, I am awesome. That's basically what he's saying. I mean, there's no one cooler than me. I did this. You know, it's just, it's just this big glory fest going on. And in that moment, reason leaves him as punishment for his self-glorification. He basically goes insane. God takes reason and logic from him. He goes out of his palace. He acts like a wild beast for a season of time. God knows when the timeout is up in his sovereign timing. And at some point, his reason returns to him and he realizes his error and, uh, and who's in charge. And he praises God after that. He comes to his senses by the grace of God. So, sovereign king of kings owns prideful little king. All right, now there's a new king, but there's the same family line. We're, we're now into the time. Daniel's still there. This is Daniel's lot in life. This is Daniel's life. He's grown up there. Same family line, different king. This is his son, uh, Belshazzar. Same problems, though. Look at chapter 5. Now we have the profane versus the holy. Belshazzar throws a massive party. There's a bunch of young, spoiled, drunk, kind of his posse, and they're bored. Okay? All they have to do all day is like hang out and party and talk about how great their kingdom is. So one of the frat boys says, hey, let's bring out those gold and silver vessels that we stole from the temple in Jerusalem so we can drink out of them. They all think this is a marvelous idea, so they go and get this. These are holy, and the word holy means set apart. So these vessels, these chalices, these goblets, whatever they are, were set aside for holy work in the temple of the Most High God. Now, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you're already going there a little bit. You're thinking, uh-oh. You know, if you start touching holy things, you know, you start thinking about sort of the scenes that are there, and, and you know there's a little bit of biblical accuracy to some of that. Um, and, and so as they go and start to do these things, they are taking what has been made holy, and they are profaning it. In the midst of them drinking out of these, these vessels, a, a finger starts to write on the wall starts to just write this message on the wall. And it says that the king loses his color. He changes his color. The king is freaking out. No one can figure it out. And at some point in the story, someone tells them of Daniel. They remember this guy, Daniel, in whom the spirit of the gods was. So let's go get him and see if he can figure it out. This young king appeals to Daniel in the way that's worked probably with every other person that he's tried to manipulate. He promises him basically lots of bling and a high position in his kingdom. He says, I'll reward you greatly if you can read what this says. Daniel's answer, you can read all about this in chapter 5, basically is this. Keep your gifts. Here's what it says. Now that alone, let me just pause for a second. That alone is just telling of what's going on in the heart of Daniel. He serves a far weightier kingdom and a much greater and mightier king, and he's looking forward to a reward that, that all this little you know, jewelry and great little places in this little kingdom, they just don't appeal to him that much. So I'll give you all this stuff. I'll give you up to half the kingdom, all these big promises, if you can do this for me. And he says, man, keep it. I'll tell you what God says, because that's what I am. I'm a prophet. I speak the words of God, and, and, that's, and that's why I do it. But I've already got my reward. You can keep your stuff. Man, to live like Daniel. He then tells him his own family history. He says, King, let me tell you about your family history. Kind of a bold move. He says, Your dad was proud. Bad stuff happened. And now here you are doing exactly the same 
thing that your dad is, has done. You don't know what the message says? Here it is. First part of it. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. <laughs> That's just the introduction. It gets better. You have been weighed on the scales and been found wanting, king. Three, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Strangely enough, Daniel gets a purple leisure suit, lots of bling, and declared third place in the kingdom. So once again, bad news is given. The king's like, he doesn't want it, but give him the reward anyways. So Daniel gets promoted to third place in a kingdom that's done that night. So you kind of see how ludicrous it is to kind of get these things. It's the best the king can possibly give him, but who cares? It's all going away. So, holiness wins. Here's the sixth story. Chapter 6, conveniently enough, there's a new king. This is King Darius. Darius favors Daniel. God has allowed this king to see Daniel somewhat for who he is, and he just favors him. He says, man, whatever this guy touches turns to gold. Keep promoting him. Give him more and more. Of course, uh, the peers didn't see it as such a good idea that Darius was planning on promoting him. So they basically conspire against Daniel to say, how can we trip him up and make Darius uh, not promote Daniel so that we still have a shot? And they tried to look for a way to mess him up. And the only kind of chink in his armor was in his rules and regulations with his God. They couldn't go after his, char- his character. They couldn't go after his his you know, choice in people he hangs out with. They couldn't go after uh, you know, how he handled his finances, evidently. They couldn't go after all these things that you would look for if you were trying to trip someone up. He was walking with the Lord. So they said, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how we'll do it. We'll use his God against him. So they go to Darius, kind of appeal to his pride. They say, hey, let's sign into a law that anyone saying a prayer or a, pe- or a petition to anyone but you, O great king, for 30 days for a month shall be punished by being thrown into the lion's den. What does Daniel do? He goes right on praying to the God he serves because he serves a higher authority. Does that seem like a good plan in the flesh? No. I was at the zoo recently. I saw. I was at a rodeo recently watching a clown in front of a bull. Okay? Now, I've seen this on TV a hundred times. I've seen pictures. But when you see it live, a human body in front of this bull that just chucked a guy off of his back and has massive horns, I had a new respect for clowns. There's just no question about it. I'm watching this guy going, whoa, that's a massive beast. This could get really ugly. And here he is darting around, getting the bull's attention away from the cowboy. When you see a predator up close and personal, you can all watch. Everyone's like giggling, looking at the lion, tap, 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 tap. And if he just goes, whoa, just a little minor roar, everyone's like, And that's the dad. You know, the kids are crying, right? Um, So, again, I I mean, bless Boston's heart. But a a five-year-old image of that claw and the lion doesn't quite do it for, like, like that's not quite scary enough, right? So, So when we think of this, we say, wow, Daniel continued to pray, windows open, openly praying, doing exactly what was against the law because he served and trusted in a higher authority. Daniel uh, is fed to the lions. God rescues him by shutting the mouths of the lions. Again, go read about it in chapter 6. Plans of God win over the scheming of these individuals. So, six conflicts, six victories. God's love for Daniel started with gifting. God, Daniel, I'm going to give you all this gifting. But what was it for? It was for a purpose. I'm not going to give you all of this so you can turn into one of these punk kings who just has no mission in life and sits there and just soaks in all these gifts. I'm going to give it to you not for a life of ease, but actually for a life of conflict so that you can uh, be used by me. Very briefly, God so loved Daniel that he injured him. Don't be tempted to romanticize Daniel and his story. It's only in hindsight that we can marvel at this kind of beautiful story as it unfolds. Wow, Daniel was so awesome to, to do that thing with the lion's den and his buddies in the fire and, and you know, going into the king's court and saying these, these truthful things. 
Think about it. He came from a defeated homeland. He was carried off by marauders at age 16. He lived his entire life that we know of uh, in a foreign land. He lived to honor God, and yet he was repeatedly punished and tested over and over and over again. And just when he gone in on good with a king, that king would leave, and there would be another one. They'd forget who he was, kind of like Joseph. So he can sometimes romanticize the things that he went through, but in real time as he went through it, he was really, really tested to lean on this God who loved him. Notice that God loved Daniel in all of this and not out of it. It wasn't that God's love was so great that he pulled him out of these problems and heartache. Daniel had to walk through with heartache for his entire life. But we see that the master has a plan. I know some of you have a theology that says, wow, it's really hard for me to get what you're saying here. God so loved the Daniel that he injured him. Is that really the kind of God we serve? Here's what I would say. I would point back to the cross. Isaiah is another prophet who would come along and he's talking about Jesus and he's saying it pleased the Father to crush him, to injure him. Talking about Jesus, the Messiah. Why would it please God to allow injury to go on with one of his children? Because the Father has a master plan. God can see beyond the horizons we can't see. Isn't it true we can look back on the story of Jesus and celebrate communion this morning, find it totally beautiful? And yet as you walk through it in real time and you get to Good Friday and the passion of the Christ, the suffering of Jesus, it's not beautiful, it's hideous. But when you pull back and see the spiritual battle and the victory and the extent that God went through to show and demonstrate his love and to free his children, it is astoundingly beautiful. So maybe you're saying here this morning, I'm not Daniel, so what does this mean for me? Let me give you just a couple of words of application. Jude 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Don't settle for simple knowledge. Yeah, 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 of course God loves me. Get on with it. What's the next point? This kid I mentioned at the beginning that was weeping in front because of his sin, he, he opened his life. God used something in that camp setting to open his soul to a complete transformation of what it meant to be loved by God, not just a head knowledge. You can partner with God in this by turning your heart's attention, by gazing on the reality. I am the beloved. God loves me. And letting your heart and mind linger there. Daniel shows us that being loved by God isn't demonstrated by our immense gifting, by our great circumstances, or even how much great ministry God does through us. Jesus, in Luke 10, you don't need to turn there, but maybe just write down Luke 10, 20. Jesus sends out these 72 disciples. He gives them authority. He says, hey, go, go and be about my kingdom. They come back and they're giddy with power. It was a great missions trip. They're up in front of the church doing the missions report. Here's what went on. Man, we saw these things go on, and they were just fired up about it. And Jesus affirms that, yes, it was a great victory. In the spiritual realm, a great victory went on because the 72 of you went out. But then he gives this little alter, you know, like this little alteration to where their focus should be. And in Luke 10.20, he says this. He says, change your priorities. He says, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you catch that? God did do incredible things through you. Daniel, you were used to change the world. But here's the best reward. God loves you. That's it. God loves you. So if you're writing something down, write this. Keep focused on the most important reward. God loves you. You know what's great about that as a pastor? When things go great and according to plan and seem so God-honoring and so victorious, and when things go terrible, not according to plan, I'm a complete idiot and things fall apart and no one responds, I've still got my reward. God loves me. God loves me. So I'm not captivated, I'm not held captive, I should say, by the whims of ministry by the whims of feeling. Daniel also shows us this, that in the, fame, in the face of extreme inconvenience, that, that's a 
Huge understatement if you read the book. And even outright persecution or death threats, go about your business of being upright, loving mercy, and humbly walking with your God. Micah 6.8. We're instructed to do that. So number two is just rely on the love of God in everyday life, every day. Let me invite the band up right now. Listen to Romans 8, 37 through 39, kind of with the context of Daniel who dealt with, with big world leaders. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, including world governments and armies, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see how you keep pointing back to Jesus as the measurement for God's love? We're going to move into a time of communion, and communion is one of the means of keeping ourselves in the love of God. When you look at Jude 21, you say, how do I do that? Do I work really hard? Do I try to never sin? Uh, Do I share the gospel a lot? How do I keep myself in the love of God? We're going to be able to apply number one here. Keep focused on this truth. Dwell on it. Jesus knew that we're forgetful. So you know what he did? He just gave a little reminder for us. He says, man, when you gather together, come around the Lord's table. Come around these elements, the bread and the wine, and and realize that this is my body that was broken for you. This is representative of the blood that was poured out on your behalf. Remember these things. Focus on these things. This morning, my invitation to you is this. The band is going to lead us in a song that is going to communicate a lot of just gospel truth. Let the words wash over you. As they do, the elements are going to be passed. I would just invite you, as the elements are passed, take a little cracker, take a little cup of juice, and just hold them. When you're ready in this first song, just just celebrate the fact that God loves you this morning. Let me pray. Father, in these next few moments of time, I pray that the music, the setting, the life of Daniel, your Holy Spirit, these elements, would come together in such a way that they would make an impact on us. God, would you steer us back on course? Would you fan the flame and remind us that we're loved by you? God, for those who've never bent the knee, for those who've never trusted by faith in receiving your love through Christ, I pray this morning is the morning that that happens. That by faith, they trust in you. And perhaps even take their first communion, celebrating what you did on the cross for us. We love you and praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.